You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. How to empower and strengthen women is the role that maternal child health and nutrition... ...is what drives this disease and and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. In this episode of Take is Directed, I sit down with Jason Stearns, director of the Congo Research Group at the Center for International Cooperation at New York University. Jason is among America's premier experts on Congolese history, politics, and economics. In this episode, he shares his astute insights into the opaque networks in eastern Congo, which are deliberately and violently targeting health providers, paralyzing the international and local response to the Ebola outbreak. This is the second of a pair of episodes that examines what steps are now most essential to end violence and win community trust and confidence in Eastern Congo. Jason, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's great to have you. I've read your stuff over the years and thoroughly benefited and enjoyed it. And we're delighted here today, June 25th, that you've come down. I wanted to speak with you today because of your insights into the politics, economics, and history of Eastern Congo, a lot of the discussions around the Ebola outbreak are much more from a public health side of the equation as to what are the interventions that have to happen to arrest an outbreak. Why is it not happening in this case when it happened? The outbreaks were arrested in the previous nine outbreaks. Most people, as a rule of thumb, are pointing to the fact that this outbreak emerged in an area of multiple and chronic armed conflicts, and that there's deep community mistrust and resistance, often violent resistance. And that's what's really set things back. It usually doesn't go much more deeply than that in terms of trying to explain this. So I was hoping you could help illuminate what do we mean by this? What is it in the political history, in the historical legacy? We know this is an area that was overrun following the Rwanda genocide. It's a place that's had a chronic set of problems. And it has an economy that that relies on high-value exports, gold, rare earth minerals, other factors in their own networks, and, and those networks and militias protect those. So tell us a bit about how you see this region and the way that the politics and economics and historical legacy are playing in what's happening on the Ebola outbreak that's been with us now for a year. Yeah, well, I think there's some... There's a bunch of different factors that have played into the fact that it's been difficult to, to halt the crisis. The first one's a geographic one. You know, this is, as you said, there have been numerous outbreaks of Ebola in the Congo before. The Congo has actually dealt with them relatively efficiently in the past. So this is not a case of the Congolese government just not being able to deal with Ebola. It's something about the particular context of the outbreak. So in past, you've had outbreaks in very remote rural areas, and that's helped contain that. In fact, that's how most Ebola outbreaks before the West Africa crisis a few years ago, how they happened. They happened in remote rural areas, and so it was relatively easy to quarantine those areas and to prevent people coming in and out. And that's how it played out in the Congo. This one's very different. Here, Ebola is taking place or, or erupted in one of the most densely populated regions of Africa, 
in the highlands of the eastern Congo, right on the outskirts or, uh, of the major towns of Beni and Butembo. Butembo alone has more than a million people in it. And so that, I think, is— And you've got about eight and a half million people in this dense area. In this dense area. So it's, that, I'm sure, is one of the factors. But the two other factors that you mentioned, I think, are important. One, armed conflict, and two, the hostility or suspicion of local population towards outside actors. So let's talk maybe about those two. The suspicion of outside actors is very important. You have to understand that Butembo in particular, Beni and Butembo, were areas where people are very proud of being self-sufficient. There are areas where they're home to a large trading community. The, the local ethnic community is called the Nande community. Mm-hmm. These are the people who, before the wars began in the 1990s in the Congo, were the first to connect the eastern Congo to the large trade hubs of Asia. So they were the first to make forays to Dubai. They went out to Guangzhou. And in fact, these are the people and, and trade boomed in this area. So it's actually a very affluent part of the Congo. But because of that, and they were also during the war, this was an area particularly between 1999 and 2003, so during the height of the war elsewhere, this was an area controlled entirely by an armed group called the RCD-KML that was able to dominate this area, so much so they were relatively free of violence just because they had relatively good consolidated control over it. Mm -hmm. And so all of this renders the population relatively unused to massive deployments of large humanitarian operations. Now, that was the case until around 2014. Before the Ebola outbreak, and this is important, there was a large spate of massacres that took place around the town of Beni and relatively little reaction from the international community. There was a deployment of the UN peacekeeping mission, but certainly not successful, and the violence has continued around Beni linked in part, but only in part, to Islamist Ugandan rebels called the ADF. The ADF, that's right. And so what happened was, and this is what many people around Butembo are now saying, is they say, well, look, where were you guys when they were butchering literally thousands of people around here? You didn't have a large, massive humanitarian operation then. And do we really need you? So it's this mixture of being proud of being self-sustaining and having made their own way in the world, and the fact that when they went through the spate of massacres, and many of them perceived to be worse than Ebola, that nobody was there to help them out. And so now you have this massive deployment of, you know, you know what it's like. You have thousands of foreigners coming into town and SUVs and deployment of obviously hundreds of millions or at least tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars to counter Ebola outbreak. And people, you know, are not, they're not stupid. They can see what's going on. And so they say, well, you guys are doing this. You weren't helping us in all these other issues. And so I think that has really crystallized a lot of suspicion towards them. There's also, I think, you know, for anybody, we have teams around, uh, around Butembo, and they say it's obvious that for many people, it looks like this is a money-making operation, right? And so the hotels are all full. The renting a vehicle is twice as much as you used to pay for for renting a vehicle. When there is an Ebola case, the humanitarian community, for their own rules of engagement, will descend in mass upon that one case because I think they have to for security reasons and other stuff. But that then appears to the local community, you know, so you have one Ebola case and you have 10 SUVs show up for somebody to, to look at this particular case, to quarantine them and all these doctors. And so for the local community, I think that then arouses suspicion as well. So there's a whole variety of issues around the deployment that sparked suspicion amongst the local community. So tell us, in your view, what is it going to take to unwind this 
problem as we now see it, which is you've got 1,100 health providers deployed into this area, 700 foreigners, 400 Congolese. You've got this whole infrastructure, but it's not working, right? Half of the cases of people who died, we've had 1,500 fatalities, 2,400 cases. Half of those who die, die outside of any health facility. Half of those who present with symptoms we have no idea where they became infected, so we have no contact tracing or no lineage. And those who do present with Ebola who are symptomatic, it's a six to seven day delay between they get isolated, between that point and when they get isolated. On those basic indicators, we're failing. And then when you look at what's happening with a radically high proportion of children who are dying, getting infected and dying, a lack of infection control, this is on the edge of a runaway epidemic. It's been on a nonlinear growth for three months now. If it were not for the vaccines, 135,000 vaccines, it would already be a totally runaway catastrophe. So in your mind, given what you've just laid out, what's the strategy? What's the strategy for unwinding this problem and getting back to having a community that could trust the, the interventions and cooperate? Because without trust and cooperation, the game's over, and this is only going to continue to grow, and it's going to become endemic to that region. Well, I'm not an epidemiologist or a public health official, so my answer would be based on my understanding of local society and politics yeah, much yeah, more. Yeah. I think that the community needs to see that the humanitarian operation cares about the community and not just about Ebola. Mm-hmm. And so there needs to be, I th- my understanding is it would be good to you know take the broader swath of concerns of the community into consideration, not just Ebola. So, you know, look at infrastructure, the health, public health infrastructure in general. Right. Rely on local knowledge. Some of the complaints from locals have been that you brought in all these external experts and have marginalized people who actually know the situation mm-hmm. or know the locals the best. Mm-hmm. And in part, I think it's because it's external experts who know Ebola. Obviously, this area has not seen Ebola recently. But it has not had Ebola before. No, there's been, Ebola, there's been Ebola to the north in, in distant past, yeah. but no, not around Benin and Butembo. There's no, there's no recollection of, of Ebola epidemics in the past. But you have many local healthcare workers that some of them feel they've been marginalized. I Their see. concerns have been taken so into consideration. So indigenize the effort. Yes. Broaden the effort yes. to cover a broader, a broader spectrum of basic needs. Yes. Listen to people. Listen to people, for sure. I think that's without talking about – so that's sort of more the carrots you can provide. Now, we haven't talked about the attacks on the Ebola workers. And there's been, I think, to my counting, there's been over 30, I think 32. That na- there was one today, so there may have been 30, or yesterday, there may have been 33. That has also, I think, very obviously been an impediment to the uh, anti-Ebola efforts locally. And has both built on this local mistrust and, I think, exacerbated the local mistrust. And I think there we need to get a better grip on what's happening. Mm-hmm. This is not just a case of local locals rising up spontaneously and attacking healthcare centers. There's something going on here. And what do you think? That well, is? what exactly it is, we're not entirely sure. There's some things that we know. We know that in in some of the cases, there appear, appear to have be both people, state actors as well as non-state actors. So both members of the Congolese security forces as well as others who see so, how much money is involved and they want to get a piece of it. And armed mobilization is part of the language of um, politics in this area. And so in one case, for example, there are suspicions that um, 
there was a local protection officer, so a Congolese government protection officer, who hired local militia members to gather information and intelligence what was going on. And those people are now apparently being accused of having perpetrated some of the attacks. In fact, he was arrested by the Congolese government, and so, but he was a Congolese government official. According to these allegations, his interest would have been to use these militias to try to get uh, a piece of the action, yeah. if you will. I mean, there's so a some of it's trying to get a cut. Trying to get a cut. How much of it is trying to fend off? If you've got illicit networks of, that are moving high-value products through these areas, how much of that is a factor? I'm not if sure at that, all, if at all. I'm not sure it's much of a factor. In Butembo, the Butembo area was not sort of they describe it as a as a haven of peace. So the Butembo area itself was not really affected by armed violence. There are lots of armed groups in the neighboring, in the vicinity, yes, uh, in the hills and the mountains around Butembo, but not in, in Butembo itself. And so, you know, the area where the humanitarian effort is deployed, which is along the main road and around the main road that goes between Buebeni and Butembo, is not a place where there's a lot of smuggling necessarily that was going on that would have been affected by this, is my understanding. Okay. So I think it's lar- a lot of what's going on is is a cut. There are some internal conflicts with some of these. T- there was a Cameroonian doctor who was killed, and now right. it appears that, that was, there was internal conflict within the anti-Ebola effort, not with him necessarily, but he was very much targeted. They came right. into a health clinic, and they shot him. Right. Then didn't, this is didn't, Dr. Mazzocco. Exactly. Then didn't attack anybody else around him. And so it appears that there is, uh, there is internal power struggles, Probably over this money again that's been mm-hmm. that's been used to deploy. So here, I think what's needed is we need to we need an intelligence operation to find out what's going on. Now, the UN peacekeeping mission is probably the best place to do that. They have intelligence officers or military officers, people trained in this sort of thing. But the person who's now the lead in the anti-Ebola effort, David Gressley, is the former deputy of that peacekeeping right. mission, right. and so he's in a good place to be able to grapple with these issues. But, you know, these networks are extremely opaque. It's extremely difficult to figure out who's doing what. And the Congolese government is often as much part of the problem as it is part of the solution. And so it's trying to figure out getting good intelligence on who are the spoilers and then convincing the Congolese government to take action against them. You know, people see money coming in and they don't want it to stop. They want money to keep coming in. And I think perversely, what I've heard some people say, again, I think this may be more of a perception than a reality, that... They don't want Ebola to go away because it's bringing in so much money. That's a scary thought. What about the question of mobilizing political leadership to be much more engaged? There's been a lot of talk of that dimension. David Gressley's spoken of this. Dr. Tedros, Director General of WHO, has been talking about the need for bipartisan political cooperation at a higher level. There's been outreach to many of the prominent folks, including Martin F- Fayulu mm-hmm. to become more engaged. How important is that in your view? I think it's important. You know, the Ebola outbreak happened on the just on the eve, or really got bad on the eve of the national elections. Mm-hmm. And national elections in the Congo were didn't, they didn't take place in this area because of Ebola. Right. Initially, the excuse provided, the pretext provided by the Electoral Commission was that because due to the Ebola ap- epidemic, they couldn't hold elections, which were eventually held at the end of December elsewhere in the Congo. They were postponed for several months in Beni and Butembo. Now, the population around Beni and Butembo are deeply in favor of the opposition and, in fact, of Martin Fayulu, who mm-hmm. did not at least officially win the elections. And they perceived, many perceived this as part of a plot to prevent them from voting for the, their candidate. Right. 
And so this feeds into the conspiracy that there's actually no Ebola epidemic. This is just being manipulated by people to for whatever ends. And in this case, the end would be to prevent them from voting for their candidate. And so it was important for Fayulu to speak out about that. You know, ironically, elections eventually did take place, even though the Ebola epidemic had gotten worse. So that sort of, you know, puts lie to that pretext initially provided this was about Ebola. So um, you have seen a campaign not just around, not just to get Fayulu to get involved, but the former rebel leader that I mentioned of this rebel group I mentioned before, the RCDKML, a guy called Mbusa Nyamwisi, who's very right. important locally. He's also now mm-hmm. spoken out about Ebola and the importance of getting vaccinated and following the instructions of health teams and collaborating with them. You've had uh, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Dr. Bukwege, mm-hmm. who has expressed, and local customary chiefs. And so I think perhaps belatedly they've been really pulled in, but you've seen a real, I mean, to be fair to the anti-Ebola uh, e- response, it's it's been, you know, it hasn't been that long. But you could say that they took too long to bring these people into the conversation, that they should have brought these political stakeholders into the so conversation. So what can we right expect now. from President Tshisekedi mm. in this? He, one of his first trips in the country was to this area. And so he has been involved and engaged. I think he understands he's very attuned to the needs, desires of the international community. For, I think, many Congolese, I mean, this is a, as terrible as it is and as, as much media attention as it has received, for most Congolese, this is very remote. This is not necessarily a front-page news. This is more front-page news for the international community than it is for Congolese. There are as many people, I believe, who have died from measles in the Congo since Ebola epidemic broke out as have died of Ebola. So just to put it in context, for many Congolese, this is not necessarily a, a front-burner issue. But I think for Chisikedi, it is simply because of the fact that because he won the elections, but most people believe that they were rigged elections, that in fact the incumbents, the Joseph Kabila rigged elections in his favor, presenting him with a deal where Chisikedi was allowed to win the presidential elections, but he had to accept Kabila dominating all other national institutions. Including apparently the cabinet, according to the deal that's in the work. Including most likely the cabinet. So the Congo is a semi-presidential system. And so the government is actually comes out of the National Assembly. The prime minister is named by the majority in the National Assembly. And Kabila totally controls the National Assembly. And so getting back to this, Chisikedi is trying to find places of where he has leverage, and the international community is definitely a place where he has leverage. So he's trying to compensate for his weakness domestically with leverage through yes. international institutions. And so that's one reason I think that he is very much uh, on board with this effort. There are, however, I think domestic considerations. For example, he doesn't get along uh, allegedly with the health minister. Mm-hmm. who has tried to very much control the anti-Ebola effort. The anti-Ebola effort has been, the health minister has tried to very much be in control, especially of international NGOs. He's very much wanted to, to make sure that everything goes through him. Now, the health minister was his father's former doctor, and some people say that Chisikedi feels that the health minister didn't do enough to save his father's life. His father uh, passed away. Just uh, recently, two years ago. Right? Two years ago, and, <laughs> you know, I think he passed away from a stroke, um, but some people say that Chisikedi bears a grudge against Ilunga, Dr. Ilunga, who's the health minister, who is his father, former doctor. And Chisikedi has appointed a member of his own team to the head of the equivalent of the NIH, the Congolese NIH, you could yes. say, to spearhead the Ebola effort for him. And so you can see sort of a parallel chains of command being set up that is complicating this process. So I think he has goodwill. I think he's trying to do what he can. 
he's not somebody who controls a whole lot in the Congo at the moment. Yeah. All of the administration, all of the security services are still the people who were left by his predecessor. Yes. I mean, when President Tisha Ketty was here recently, we had a chance to engage with him. His view was very consistent with what we've been hearing from Kagame or from Museveni, which is don't overstate this problem. It's contained. We will be able to arrest it. And that shared sentiment, I think, complicates things significantly in, in conveying to the outside world I think, a, a misconception of actually what's happening. And it complicates, obviously, when the emergency committee is meeting in, in Geneva to look at is this a true health emergency or not. They're coming under intense pressure from Congo and from Rwanda and Uganda not to do that because of the disruptions to trade, travel, air travel and the like. Uh, which is a very common phenomenon when you get an outbreak like this, that you have lots of tension around the economic consequences and the disruptions of, of trade and travel. L last question is around the United States. Uh, the U.S. has in the past been in the lead in uh, Ebola outbreak responses. CDC has a lot of expertise. AIDs played a very important role, certainly in the West Africa. Outbreaks in 1415, we saw that play out. Um, in this instance, we've had a problem of you know, the ADF attacks in August, shortly after a CDC and AID team had deployed into the epicenters in and around Beni, a decision taken to not have them deployed into the epicenters. We have our experts in Goma and in Kinshasa and in the neighboring countries. But there have been missions recently by the head of USAID, Mark Green, by Tim Ziemer, a very respected senior official AID, by Robert Redfield from CDC, all very important steps from a Washington standpoint, raising concern and visibility and coming back to Washington and ability to engage. What is it in your view that the U.S. can and should be doing in this next phase, would you say? And that might include stopping doing certain other things. It's hard to say. I think in terms of what it takes for, from a public health point of view, I'm, I'm less qualified to comment. But I think that if part of the problem is getting the Congolese government to deploy the political will necessary, not only to dedicate the resources necessary, but to get rid of parallel chains of command, to hold accountable people who are stepping out of line or even benefiting from this. I mean, the Congolese security services and administration can be a hive and a th or a thicket of patronage networks. And in this case, Patronage can actually work at counter purposes with because patronage means money. And so there are there may be people in the system trying to actually perpetuate this crisis. And so you need to have people, you know, it's politically costly sometimes to crack down on that, I guess is what I'm saying. And so one of the things the U.S. can be doing is to try to make sure that that cracking down happens, that this is an, a, at a high level of priority. And as you were pointing out, perhaps it's not high level enough of a priority. The U.S. government has been has positioned itself as a key international backer of the Chisikedi government. Mm -hmm. I would say they've gone out of their way. I would say probably even gone too far, not only backing Chisikedi, but in dressing up the election results as legitimate. Mm -hmm. at, in contrast with many other outside observers and diplomatic Took partners. Took a more cautious approach. Who said, look, it is what it is. These elections, you know, he's president, but we're not going to say these were good elections. Whereas... You know, this isn't Secretary of State has gone forward and saying this has been the, you know, historic elections, the best democratic elections. It was none of those things. And I think it's a bit embarrassing to keep on saying that. So, but that also has provided perhaps a false sense to Chisikedi that he can do no wrong by the U.S. 
And so, you know, perhaps it's now time in terms of the Ebola response to say that, you know, we are a strong partner of you. The U.S. is a partner of GCK, not because they love the election results, but because they are they made it's a real choice. They made a choice and they're trying to emancipate GCK from Kabila's control. You can understand that even if you don't understand the rhetoric that they use in doing so. But I think that perhaps they need to now exercise a little bit more pressure, some frank talk with Chisikedi about how much he should prioritize this. So I think that should be probably one thing. I think that it is going to, this is, a, in my view, a case study of the pathologies of the Congolese administration and security services above all. And yes, of course, there are perception problems involved as well. And I think what the U.S. needs to be doing with others is to try to deploy, you know, enough resources, more resources, but certainly resources that invest in the community, make the community understand that they're not here just for Ebola, but they're here for to, to try to help the community, a community that's been, you know, has never really received much assistance or aid from the outside. So in closing, do you count yourself as an optimist? Do you count yourself as a... Pessimist? How do you... On the Ebola epidemic? On the Ebola epidemic. What's your closing thought on where we're likely to be in 12 months' time? I would say I'm optimistic to the extent... The Congolese state is seen by many from the outside as shambolic, but it includes many, I think, extremely competent uh, and good people inside it. The local community around Butembo is extremely cohesive. If they see this as affecting their survival as a trade hub, their survival as a community, they will act. So I'm, I'm confident that at some point it will escalate to that level. Obviously, too many people have died already, and I'm afraid how far we'll have to escalate to reach that level and the degree to which at that point it may be too late. <laughs> so maybe I'm a, I'm a very cautious optimist. But I think that so many times I've seen in the past years, especially around the elections, Congolese come together to actually confront obstacles and challenges like this and to rise to the occasion. So maybe that makes me a bit of an optimist at the moment. But I don't know. I think that this is really unprecedented. You know, there's never been an Ebola epidemic, an outbreak in a conflict zone. There are 130 armed groups in the Kivus or in this area alone. I would say there's about 20. That makes it such an unpredictable and opaque situation. We've done research around Beni for around three years, and I've been working in Eastern Congo for 18 years. I've never found a place where it's so hard to get information, and I think that's going to be a huge obstacle in this case. Jason, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today, and thank you for coming down from New York to be with us. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take as Directed featuring Jason Stearns, director of the Congo Research Group at the Center for International Cooperation at New York University. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. To keep up to date on our latest work, please visit our Global Health Policy Center program page at csis.org.